Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. We're turning to a topic today that is both eternally relevant, but also at the height of current events, namely the impeachment trial. It's a topic I've wanted to explore for many months as the writing on the wall has gotten increasingly distinct that President Trump will not be removed from office, notwithstanding, at least as it seems to me, an overwhelming factual case of pernicious abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. And so the question is, why not? We have in the Constitution, or it's thought that we have this sort of if fire break glass remedy for just such singular abuse of power, but that design apparently is not up to the task at hand. Is it because of some original flaw, some changes in the law, changes in social conditions? In a word, has the presidency grown too powerful for the Constitution? I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist. And with me live in New York City today is an ideal group of expert scholars with deep experience in government and the Constitution to discuss this vexing question. First, Bob Bauer returns for the third time to Talking Feds. As our listeners all know, Bob served as White House counsel to President Obama after having been the premier, I think without doubt, election law attorney in the country. He's now professor of practice and distinguished scholar in residence at NYU Law School and co-director of NYU's Legislative and Regulatory Process Clinic and a frequent contributor to Lawfare. Welcome back, Bob. Next, Kate Shaw, who some listeners have heard on our special Patreon site, though this is her first full Talking Feds episode, and many more have heard on ABC News, where she's a regular contributor. Kate is a professor of law and the co-director of the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy at Cardozo Law School. She's also a co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast, which is about the Supreme Court, and is a public member of the Administrative Conference of the United States. Welcome, Kate. Thanks very much for joining. What is the Administrative Conference of the United States? So it's a government agency that was defunct and then uh, restarted under the Obama administration that reviews and provides recommendations surrounding just the functioning of administrative agencies. So it has a bunch of government members and then public members. And I'm one of the public members. It's academics and um, some uh, public interest lawyers, some lobbyists just sort of to study and uh, recommend improvements to the administrative state. And whom do you uh, provide the uh, recommendations to? Uh, That's a great question. To the agencies, to Congress, if it wants to think about sort of uh, actually institutionalizing through statute some of the recommendations to the public. Um, They're just reports and recommendations. There's no binding force to any of it. All right. And finally, Rick Pildes, the Suttler Family Professor of Constitutional Law at NYU Law School and undoubtedly one of the nation's leading experts, maybe the leading expert on election law and the law of democracy, a field he essentially conceived. He successfully also litigated voting rights and election cases in the Supreme Court and courts of appeals. Among his many books and writings is the leading text, The Law of Democracy. Uh, And currently he co-teaches a course with Bob. What is that? 
It's called Presidential Powers. We have taught it uh, a number of times. This is the first time we've taught it since the 2016 election. So there seems to be quite a bit of student interest for some reason Mm -hmm. in the subject. Um, And we're very excited to get started with it. All right. Let's dive in. You know, I've argued, it seems to me clearly the case, that the Trump articles of impeachment present as urgent a case for the impeachment remedy, the provision we've been left, as the nation has experienced, and yet removal won't occur. Are we agreed around the table on that, that this is where you would look to the impeachment provision more than ever happened in our country? So it's a really important question why it doesn't seem to be available. Is that, you know, as a, as a sort of practical matter of where we are, something that anyone takes issue with? I actually yeah. would take issue oh, with that. Go ahead. Um, it depends a little bit on how you think about exigent circumstances. But when President Andrew Johnson was impeached in the aftermath of the Civil War, the stakes there in terms of substantive policy for the country were as high as they have ever gotten in our history. And remember, Andrew Johnson was not elected to the presidency. No one voted for Andrew Johnson in the 1864 presidential election. And the country was facing these momentous issues of essentially what did the Civil War mean? What did the end of slavery mean? Uh, How were black American citizens going to be dealt with by federal law? And this was really almost a revolutionary moment in our history, maybe the second American revolution, as many people have called it, many scholars. Andrew Johnson, unelected, stood in the way of the major policy choices the Congress wanted to make about how to handle these issues. He vetoed legislation multiple times, central legislation of the Congress on these issues. And so although he wasn't charged with corruption, I think you can certainly argue that the stakes in that context were as high as we've ever had in a presidential impeachment context and maybe in any confrontation between Congress. And All right. The yeah, so fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. I'll take that amendment that the stakes were, were as high. But the proposition that I'll stick to is the case for abuse of power. I mean, Johnson, we now think of as having been sort of, as you describe, essentially crosswise on policy and perhaps on presidential power. But the articles against Trump state a rank uh, abuse of power with great, if not transcendent, national uh, security Im- implications and obstruction. So I'll, are we agreed that at least in terms of a, a presidential conduct, leaving the, the stakes out, this is as, as uh, strong a case as the nation has seen? I would agree probably with both what you said and what Rick just said. I mean, I think that it's definitely right that this kind of existential struggle over the sort of character of the post-war democracy is what is really at the heart of the Johnson impeachment. But of course, as Rick says, that's not what the articles charged. And perhaps they should have more forthrightly explained what Congress was actually impeaching him for. But I think as to your question, I think it's right that the conduct alleged in the articles against President Trump is sort of this perfect storm of what is at the heart of the impeachment clauses in the Constitution, right? Because there are a few of them. And if you read contemporaneous materials, what do they talk about? Use of office for personal gain, to retain power, improper entanglements with foreign powers, subordination, even betrayal of the national it's got interest. It all, right? and, and those are usually sort of separate in the writings at the time. And there is, you sort of see them all together here. And so, though I do think that if you take seriously the 
contemporaneous description of the purpose of these provisions and the process the Constitution creates. I, mean, I think that obviously there are a lot of similarities to the Nixon conduct, but I think it's basically right. I think that both Gerhardt and Feldman, the law professors who testified uh, in the House, suggested the conduct here is more serious than the conduct at issue in Nixon. It's, I would say it's at least as serious, I guess. Okay. And, well, and Bob, any, any dispute there? I'm not sold that it's necessary, uh, even if you take a harsh view of Trump's conduct, which I do, I'm not sure the comparative analysis is all that terribly helpful. I completely agree with Rick. I also wouldn't minimize what Richard Nixon did with his administration. I mean, setting up an illegal operation to break into opposition headquarters and his direction to his age, which in that instance they didn't follow, to firebomb the Brookings Institution, illegal surveillance, misuse of the Internal Revenue Service to hound political enemies. All right. Well, but look. So I'm not sure whether it really helps us in the right. analysis of Trump to see whether it's worse or not as bad yeah. or equally bad as some of the other events. I think it stands, as I think most impeachments do, on its own facts. And I think... The real question is the one that, to me, is the one that you asked at the very beginning, and there are a lot of different ways of asking it. Why is it that the outcome is foreordained here? And why does it appear, looking at the impeachment process right now, that you essentially see the Senate, for all intents and purposes, going through the motions? Okay, perfect. I think you said it better. I'll just add a couple things. You know, Kate said alleged facts. I won't even put this, serve this up to the uh, assembled. You know, these facts are very clearly established, it seems to me. And then second, okay, Nixon v. Trump discussed. You're you're right. Let's put that to the side. What we have, by all accounts, is something that we would think of, yikes, what do we do here? Oh, right, impeachment. And we turn to that. And as you say, it seems to be something of an empty exercise. So... Why is that? Are you know? Have there been changes in the law? Is the acquiescence by Congress, social changes, composition of the courts? What what's happened that has made the Constitution not equal to the task, or perhaps it never was? Do you see the problem here as kind of you could see it as a structural problem that the presidency has grown just too powerful generally and going forward? The impeachment clauses will be, you know, really weakened or you could see this as a very sort of fluky set of circumstances having to do with, you know, Trump's knife edge of power, et cetera. Before, in other words, diving into specific possible causes, do you see this as a real constitutional issue that we have to reevaluate? Or do you see this almost everything's a one off, but especially as a one off in terms of explanations? I'm going to serve up a comment here that introduces uh, Rick into the conversation. Clearly, what we're seeing in part is yet another example of how we have a constitutional system that has broken out into a separation of parties, not of powers. And the separation of parties argument is one that Rick made famous in an article he wrote a number of years ago. I think that's a key part. Explain what you mean. Well, actually, Rick, you probably, I have Marshall McLuhan right here. (laughs) I do. I get to pull him right out from behind the sandwich board. Uh, Well, I'm happy to respond to to Bob on that. Yes. So, I think there are many factors that contribute to this, but probably the dominant one is that when the framers created the Constitution— Well, but what is this? What do you mean by separation of parties? Yes. So when the framers created the Constitution, they did not envision 
the rise of political parties. In fact, they hoped the Constitution would preclude the rise of political parties. Parties were thought to be anathema to democracy. And so the conception of how the Senate and the House would work and their um, checking on the president, the checks and balances system, it was all built in a world in which political parties were not envisioned. Once political parties developed and became very strongly institutionalized, and particularly as politics became more polarized, it turns out the way these institutions actually work is they have, of course, as we know, very strong partisan ties between the party members of the president's party in the House or the Senate and the president. They have shared interests. They have a shared fate, the electoral fate of senators and members of the House of one party, like the Republican Party, is tied to the success of the Republican president if the president is Republican. And of course, the same for Democrats. And what that has meant is that many mechanisms in the Constitution do not function in the way they were originally designed. So a two-thirds requirement for conviction in the Senate uh, is far greater a hurdle than I think it was imagined to be, even though it was meant to be a serious hurdle at the time it was created. The same thing is true with treaty approvals in the Senate. The Senate almost never approves treaties anymore because you have the same kind of requirement there. And if there's any partisan division on a treaty, you simply can't get to the two-thirds that's required for approval of a treaty. Now, in the treaty context, government has figured out workarounds. So presidents have developed what are called executive agreements. And that's the way a lot of our international negotiations are structured now. In the impeachment context, we don't really have a workaround because, as we know, presidents can't be held criminally responsible while they're in office. So the only real mechanism is impeachment or elections. And if the impeachment issues are about manipulating the next election, then you have these forces coming together, as Kate said, in a way that helps reveal some of the ways in which the structure doesn't work as it was originally designed. So I think that's the big issue. I, you know, so I think this is a huge point and kudos to Rick for, you know, having explained it early on. But am I right? So what the framers were thinking got taken by surprise in 1800 or whatever is there would be factions, right? That's, that's my, you know, that made me think of Israel or England. There would be four or five or six political clusters. You wouldn't call them parties. But in that kind of situation, that what it would take to have a critical mass of disapproval of the president would, you know, there would be the president's loyalists, but for three or four other factions coalescing to express a common disapprobation. Is that, is, would you think that would, would have been their sense of how the, the supermajority would, would work, Bob? Yes, I think that's right. I want to add one more point just to sort of maybe it's an exclamation point on what Rick said as it applies in the current circumstances, because we, I want to get back to the question of why is it that we're seeing what appears to be this desultory exercise in which the Senate's not, at least on one side, terribly interested in the outcome? There are exceptions, but that's generally the, the sense that you have. The other complication in this instance, which I think exacerbates this whole, you know, party resistance or party blockage to, you know, full institutional consideration of the merits of the articles is that the impeachment process runs up against hard political realities. For all that has happened here, President Trump still has massive support in the Republican Party in the electorate and approval rating in the 40 percentile. 
with polls demonstrating that the country's relatively evenly split, not on the question of whether he acted improperly, where it appears that a majority thinks that he did, but certainly on the question of whether he ought to be removed from office, and then making matters worse, that is to say for this institutional consideration of the merits, is that the impeachment process is taking place nine months before general election, in which the president's a candidate for re-election. Does this make sense to you, um, Kate? And is that, you know, that strikes me as a state of affairs that would have been very much in the can of what the framers might have thought of, nevertheless. So is, is that just a built-in flaw that they couldn't address? Or is that defect in their overall planning? Well, so, I mean, I, I think the premise of your question is that the process, if President Trump isn't removed, then that means that the process doesn't work or there is potentially some institutional design flaw either from its inception or based on intervening circumstances. Let me just amend it, which is if there isn't a serious question provoking this, the most considered Senate thought, then yes, it's a flaw. Right. And I guess I just don't know. There may be some value in the process, even if it doesn't result in conviction and removal. Right. So I guess um, so I guess, yeah, it depends on what we think it means for the impeachment process to work in some fashion. So, you know, we've had four now or we're midway through the fourth presidential, you know, partial, at least presidential impeachment. And it worked in some sense in Nixon. Right. He wasn't convicted and removed, but it did work and that it forced resignation. And Johnson obviously isn't convicted and removed, but only by one vote. And I think by all accounts, there was most likely bribery or at least a degree of corruption as to a couple of the decisive yeah. votes. And also, you know, so so um, and there were consequences apart from his removal. Right. So during the pendency of his well, House and, and Senate trial, the House consideration, but I think this was during the Senate trial. He agrees to appoint this new war secretary, Schofield, who's kind of this consensus pick. He really steps back from a lot of this reconstruction obstruction that he's been engaging in. So it has. And then, of course, he doesn't and the even war get his secretary and his choice what was what had prompted him to be crosswise with the Congress. Right? right. So, yeah. So nine of the 11 articles of impeachment are over his removal or attempt to remove in violation of this statute at Stanton, who is the secretary of war. So so he basically there is a real change in his conduct of the presidency that the impeachment forces. Doesn't and th- seem too likely. Here. Well, that's, I think, a huge question. But also with Johnson, let me just say, you know, he doesn't even get his party's nomination in 1868 later that same year, although he very much wants it. So there are consequences, even though removal is not one of them. And I think you could I mean, you know, Bob was obviously inside of this, so he can speak to this better. But with Clinton, you know, it's failed in in that from the perspective of the Republican managers, you know, seeking removal. And obviously he survives and, you know, and picks up seats in the 98 midterm election and, you know, leaves office with a great approval rating. But, you know, arguably he's damaged in all kinds of ways. Maybe he doesn't campaign with Gore as much as he would have had he not been seen as this damaged figure. And maybe Gore would have won the 2000 election. I think there are at least folks who have told that story. So there are consequences, I think, in both to the system at large and you know, sort of a symbolic effect, but also maybe with respect to deterring certain kinds of conduct in a, the figure of a particular president. And that, I guess, is the question here. Could Is that happening? Could that happen? Even if, as obviously seems foreordained at this point, President Trump isn't removed. Like, does this have some kind of deterrent effect? Does it change his behavior in the last year or, you know, the next five years of right. his administration? Now, although here, questions like that really do, we really do seem to have a sui generis president here. I mean, even the actual articles, remember, he plunged into this misconduct the day the Mueller report drops. And when you might think any sane person would think like... Or the day of the uh, testimony, the day Mueller, right? The day, I think... Oh, into the conduct. Yeah, he, he, I mean, the... Oh, the March. Uh, okay, not the, the call, because the call is after the testimony, but, but right? But what I'm saying is... Yeah. He, you know, you would think any same person would, you know, you get a cop stops you for a you, you, you drive for the next, you know, several 
minutes anyway, a little more cautiously, yeah. it seemed like he redoubled. In fact, one of the arguments here uh, is this need be done, otherwise he'll be, you know, pedal to the metal to uh, for for interference, you know, going forward in the the 2020 election. But okay, fair enough. I, and can I come the, back to this point that yeah. Bob mentioned? Because I found this incredibly interesting. This Pew poll that came out just yesterday, which found that 63%, if I remember correctly, of people believe President Trump did something wrong or illegal. 63%. So partly what this process has done is it, it exposes facts, it exposes people to what's gone on, but only 51% of people believed he should be convicted and removed from office. And what's that say? So that, well, that tells you that there's a significant sized population out there who thinks this conduct is, was wrong, maybe illegal, but doesn't think it warrants removal from office at this time, which, as Bob said, is, you know, as we're in the middle of the election cycle. And, you know, that doesn't seem to me an implausible position for people to to reach. It's not that they don't see this conduct. And don't think it's wrong or, or maybe illegal, but they can still make the political judgment that they don't think a president should be removed at this point. And that may certainly be affected by the knowledge that the election is coming up. And maybe all of this will have an effect on the election, as Kate was saying. So yeah. we don't know what all the consequences from this process will be beyond the the sort of the bare question, will he be convicted? And all right. Well, so a principal argument, you're right, of the Republicans is this not now, especially when an election's coming up. Is it clear, though, that I mean, Bob, do you take this to be the sort of nuanced judgment of the American people, if you can generalize, because an election is happening? Or do you just take, you know, half the country to say, damn, damn, no, I want my Trump. And, I, you know, it's not that the election is coming and we can have a sober judgment. It's I want Trump. I would add to what Rick said, the additional possibility, which I don't have any evidence for. I mean, I haven't looked at the underlying polling data to see whether there's support for it, but I wouldn't be surprised to find it, that the notion that Donald Trump broke a law is rather baked into the cake of the electorate's perception of what he's capable of doing, right? Why doesn't he release his tax returns? You know, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and my supporters would still, would still applaud me. In other words, he has defined himself in such a way that makes believing that he broke the law completely by the way, you know, plausible, even to those who support him, and they don't especially care. Or let's put it this way, don't especially care makes it sound like a moral flaw. They balance it against other things that he offers them, and they're willing to take that and live with his excesses, right? For example, yesterday, I think he broke his tweeting record. So in the middle of the impeachment process, imagine being the White House counsel arguing these cases and having the president with an ongoing tweet commentary. And you have no idea from one second to the other while you're speaking what he's saying, right? There is polling data to show that even his supporters wishes he wouldn't tweet. They wish he wasn't so coarse. They wish he wasn't so coarse in his tweets. They accept it. They've decided that's who he is. And they're willing to live with it. So I do think that probably to some degree lies behind the belief that he probably did something illegal. How many Americans, after all, have the time, patience, inclination to paw through the record here and build a, you know, a comprehensive understanding of everything he did to solicit foreign interference on our elections? Not many. They're, they're picking up on the headlines. They understand roughly what the issues are, and it's believable to them, but they don't think he should be removed from office. That's a really, really interesting point. Okay, I would like to sort of 
generalize or move from Trump, particularly to the state of the presidency, and especially whether it's part of what might be surprising, say, for the framers if they were to be uh, observers of the contemporary scene. All right. So back to the broader question at hand. I think we've been everyone here has kind of defaulted to uh, political explanations and ones that almost necessarily because the president himself is such a political, you know, rara avis or phenomenon that don't really extend necessarily to the broader, to, to the future, right? I mean, a big issue here is has the impeachment power been weakened or emasculated in some way? And as with Johnson, say, or even Clinton, in which impeachment episodes, though one-offs, establish kind of principles going forward. For example, policy differences shouldn't be the basis for impeachment by and large. Private, possibly immoral behavior shouldn't be. If we stated that principle for the Trump scenario— Massive abuse of power and corruption and obstruction of Congress shouldn't be. We've got quite a changed and weakened impeachment power. So do you think that in general, what we're seeing has kind of a lasting power of really changing the balance, checks and balances, pardon, et cetera, impeachment? Has the basic power relations between Congress and the president been changed so that impeachment is off the table, you know, in any but almost fill in the blank, you know, the craziest kind of kind of conduct? I mean, I'll take a stab at it. I think it's it's obviously hard from in, right right inside this historical moment to really reflect on what its uh, lessons will be. I mean, it does feel like. We are. I think it's. I think we probably all agree that we are. We live in a moment of expansive presidential power, maybe presidential governance. It's been that way for many decades, and that an important component of that is that we are in a moment of a Congress that has relinquished many of its both hard and soft powers vis-a-vis the president and checking the president. And I should. Well, say, so let me ask you about to yeah. kind of trace that a bit. That moment is. 60 years old, 20 years old. Tell it, you know, yeah, ex- I mean, I, expand on that a little. Uh, you know, I, I, I'd be curious to hear what you guys are teaching presidential power later today. I mean, look, uh, I think that arguably there is a post-Nixon sort of dip in that you have sort of a moment of Congress sort of ascendant under President Ford and that since then we've been in a moment of ex- ex- sort of presidential expansion. Arguably, we are talking since the 60s that we have had, we've been in a moment of the imperial presidency. I mean, you know, Wilson and Teddy Roosevelt, in some ways, I think, are architects of at least the sort of increasing kind of rhetorical power of the presidency and sort of rhetoric and speech as these kind of components of, you know, presidential governance. And so so I, I, I think there are a lot of ways to trace the trajectory. I think one way that I think is pretty indefensible is, is, is an argument that uh, Bill Barr made before the Federal Society a couple of months ago that's basically since 74, we've been a moment in a moment of presidential, uh, the sort of in the decline of presidential power. I think that's a difficult narrative right. to sustain. Right. Oy Congress just keeps <laughs> picking on us. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah. Well, I think that um, one of the things that's interesting in the history of the expansion of presidential power, and Kate kind of alluded to this a bit, is that for much of the 20th century, it was progressives who advocated for a more forceful use of presidential power. 
Um, and this really does start with Teddy Roosevelt. So one interesting fact about Teddy Roosevelt is he issued more executive orders than all previous presidents in our history combined. And that reflected his conception of the presidency. Before him, many presidents thought that if they weren't authorized by Congress to take some action, then they couldn't act. Teddy Roosevelt kind of flipped the default and took the view, if Congress hasn't prohibited me from acting, then I'm going to issue executive orders and take action, whether it's creating the national park system or you know many other things that, that Teddy Roosevelt did. And of course, FDR is another moment when there's massive expansion of the powers of the presidency. And then, of course, in the post-World War II era and with the rise of nuclear weapons, you know, many people view that as mm -hmm. a transformative moment in the powers of the presidency because almost by necessity, given the rapidity with which uh, military force can turn into cataclysmic consequences, presidential power, uh, the national security state, which needed to be formed in that era after, uh, with the kind of ongoing Cold War. You know, the, there and are you various also moments. sort of have Congress saying, yeah, you take it, President, we, when, when we're talking about those stakes, right? Yes. And the issue of what Congress has done or hasn't done, I think, is also really interesting in this area. In my view, uh, one of the things that's hampered Congress, in addition to all its institutional defects, which are real, is a Supreme Court decision that doesn't get talked about as much in these conversations as I think it ought to. Um, and in my view, I think it's actually probably the most important separation of powers decision the Supreme Court has ever issued. Wow. Kate is already nodding her head. So this is interesting. Well, I assume you're talking about Chada. Yeah, I'm yeah. talking about this, this case called INS versus Chada. Why don't, that was a great mind meld there. Then. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think this is yeah. very... Spell it out for non-lawyers. Right. So I don't think this is very widely appreciated. So with the complexity of modern government, Congress felt a need to give the executive branch broad powers. It couldn't define in advance exactly the context in which those powers should be used. But the way Congress tried to retain some control over the use of those powers is by, in many of these statutes, including for the use of military force, putting in what's called a legislative veto. And so if Congress rejected the way the president was applying a statute Congress had enacted where they had given the president discretion, uh, Congress could takes various forms, but let's say through both houses agreeing, pass a joint resolution, which the president could not veto, uh, saying we reject your application of the statute in this context. And that was a way for Congress to, on the one hand, recognize the need for executive discretion, but be able to maintain some kind of check on it. Now, in this Chada decision, the Supreme Court held that the legislative veto is unconstitutional. And I think that has played a significant role, especially for statutes that were enacted way before the Supreme Court decided this case, in making it much more difficult for Congress to control the president. Because there are many situations, including with the use of force, including the debates we're having now about the use of force potentially with Iran, about how broadly or narrowly Congress, if it's going to take the lead, empowers the president to use force? How, how do they anticipate what circumstances might arise? What kind of force is appropriate? If they legislate too narrowly, they may be hamstringing the president. If they legislate too broadly, they may be giving away power they don't think the president should use. 
And without having this legislative check on specific uses of presidential power. Sort of back-end way. Of, a yeah. back-end way, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think that's really, really changed the balance of power that would otherwise exist between the president and Congress. All right. Let's, so let's say that's so. Um, and there, there seem to be nods around the table. Bob, can you sort of bring that home, though, to our, the topic at hand or the impeachment power? You could certainly conceive of a overall structure in which there's been this expansion and a need for a more nimble presidency, especially in foreign powers. Nevertheless, the same level of abuse triggers the same show of force by Congress and the same use of an impeachment Power. Do you do you think the general story that Kate first outlined of growth of executive power is, in fact, a huge cause of a weakening, if we're all positing a weakening of the impeachment power? Yes, I absolutely do. And I just want to add one other point about the political culture around the presidency that I think is really important. We've talked about the various reasons why functionally nimbleness, ability to respond quickly, energy dispatch, the sorts of qualities that Hamilton identified as important in the presidency. In a complex society with major international security interests, puts a premium on the executive's ability to act quickly and with discretion and so forth. But there's another problem. And that is the president has become a near mythological figure in the United States. Because of all this stuff. Well, because we have come to Gene Healy at the Cato Institute wrote a book entitled The Cult of the Presidency. Okay. We have come to believe that the president is by and large an individual somehow by virtue of election to office of near heroic proportions and stature, right? Like a we're pope interest, or something. We're interested in the president's hobbies and what the, how the president, you know, uh, seasons uh, his or her coffee in the morning. And, and that's the, all new, you think? The, it has certainly grown uh, in – the way in which the public perceives the president, reacts to the president. Think, for example, I was struck by this. The trumpeteers who march out in front of the president and blow the trumpets when the president's inaugurated. It's very monarchical. It's really quite an extraordinary presentation. You know, hundreds of thousands of people on the mall, millions of people on, on television watching the president deliver these rhetorically highfalutin, you know, announcements of what he or she's going to do to alter the course of the world's history, right? And when they're gone, by the way, when their terms ended, then there's this sort of post-presidency that's developed with, you know, libraries and memorials and you name it. That is a really dangerous, dangerous sort of development in the culture at large that this particular individual is picked out for this level, if you will, of attention and focus. Granted, the adulation is periodically accompanied by periods of severe disaffection. Presidents are sometimes, you know, raised well, brought very high up and then sometimes brought rather low. But that's that's driving it as well. But that Although connects what? to your question. George Washington, right? I mean, that's well, probably George the... Washington, uh, as the first president, is entitled to all sorts of, <laughs> uh, shall okay. we say, dispensation that maybe other presidents are not entitled to. But that ties into the question you asked about impeachment. Think about the terms in which we've discussed impeachment in this country. A national nightmare, an absolute catastrophe, somehow the most, you know, the greatest test we could ever face is this moment where we remove the president from office for abuse of power is somehow something we can barely endure. It happens 
It, it can only happen under the most extreme circumstances. To some extent, there's some truth to that. But in another sense, it's completely weakened our sense of impeachment as a control of genuine presidential abuse That's of office. That's a really great point. I mean, compare it to a parliamentary system, right? If a you know, and the and the displacement of a prime minister, a big deal, but, you know, would certainly yes. within the work of day. Can I just say um, something here to add to Bob's story, the role of technology and technological change was, over time, because yeah. that's really an important part of this story that Bob was telling. So presidents could not they didn't have as personalized and direct relationship with Americans uh, as they did starting in the era of radio. And when FDR started with his fireside chats, that was a major transformation in the presidency where he could speak directly to Americans, massive listenership. Uh, it's his voice. It's coming into your home. And then, of course, with the rise of television, this gets even more powerfully accentuated. And now, of course, we have the additional forms of Twitter and the ability to bypass the traditional media. But presidents didn't have the capacity to have that kind of personalized, immediate, direct relationship with most Americans in the 19th century, for example. And, and by the way, here's another thing that's changed. For a long part of our history, it was not thought appropriate for presidential nominees to campaign right. for the presidency. So this strikes many people as bizarre, uh, but they, they had surrogates who were out there. They wrote letters. But you didn't have these kinds of two-year processes of, you know, being on television, being in debates, competing in primaries, competing in the general election. So technological changes are, are definitely a significant part of the story and the increase uh, of the focus on the president as supposedly the embodiment of the nation. Right. And, and just to add to that, so the political scientist Jeff Toulis tells this story that, you know, um, it's not just about technology, but the sort of the second thing that you alluded to, actually, by design, the sort of understanding of the presidency crafted by the framers was one that really discouraged sort of the use or engagement in popular rhetoric, that, that when the president spoke it was meant to be in the vein of kind of constitutional instruction, not the advocacy of particular policy initiatives. And when advocacy was appropriate, it was mostly to be directed at Congress as opposed to public. And, you know, the political scientist Sam Cornell has also talked about, you know, this idea that the presidency has shifted in this public facing direction rhetorically. You know, pre-FDR, right, he really does trace it to Woodrow Wilson, but obviously then radio and FDR and then and then television. And obviously we are now in the age of the Twitter presidency and kind which of I, which I yeah. do want to move to. But it and, but it, I mean, I mean, it is a great point. So my mom was born in 1928. You know, when Roosevelt died, she like wept. It was, you know, the the the, the father of the nation or whatever, which, you you know, and whereas before then, I, I think it's a fairly recent innovation that presidents even give State of the Union addresses in Congress. And, you know, they be, have become so much more visible. Bob, you had a, a follow on point. That was exactly in part what I was going to mention oh, because that. Kate brought up. No, <laughs> don't be sorry at all. Kate brought up Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson is the one who determined that he should appear before the Congress. Now, think again about that particular pageant. It's an empty pageant. President of the United States comes in the chamber. The entire Congress gets up. They scream. They slap his back. They grab for his hand. He gets up there. He delivers his address. He sets the legislative agenda. He puts various people into the galleries whom he recognizes as sort of symbolizing what it is that he wants to say. I mean, it's very driven, again, this whole development of a domestic agenda to what the president prefers. And the way I would put it to summarize the historical points that Kate and Rick just made is the following. The founders thought that extraordinary individuals would be recruited to become president. 
We now have a system in which various individuals are expected to come forward and tell everybody how extraordinary they are. Yeah, they would know. Um, Although, really- of course, they also, the framers specifically warned against, and I think this is our first instance of the, the, the equivalent in 18th century language of a celebrity. Hey, you know, that was actually a, a risk they specifically were worried about. Yeah. yeah. Well, just to connect the State of the Union to the present impeachment moment, I mean, it is the case that the fact that the president wants to deliver his State of the Union on February 4th is influencing everything in the timing of this right. Senate trial. Like it is, a, it, is a, it is a big enough deal that they are going to probably shorten their presentation of evidence the president's team is so they just do a day instead of three days or maybe a day and a half because they want to get through it so we can do have this big pageant and have it be a triumphant pageant right after this complete vindication and it's absurd that a speech would take on that kind of power there's also one other thing maybe to inject into the conversation is this kind of rhetorical transformation of the presidency is something that donald trump has accelerated but is obviously a trend that long predates him but the kind of the tendency towards a kind of demagoguery, I think, is something that distinguishes him from previous presidents. I mean, so Tula says, you know, we never elected a demagogue before Donald Trump, right? So Andrew Johnson is arguably a demagogue. But as you said, Rick, at the beginning, he wasn't elected not, president. Not a very effective one. But he tried. And I think some of the rhetoric on the campaign trail in 1866 is remarkably similar to some of President Trump's rhetoric. So so that, I think, distinguishes obviously his mode of speech in its right. kind of divisiveness from others. But you might say, others. well, we've never had a demagogue. We've got a demagogue now and, and a a wicked one. And we better turn to the we better dust off this this provision we have to. But up oh, it ain't. Well, here's another I mean, another way to put it. Everything I think we people you, you've remarked, every factor is unassailable. But it was all in play in 19 in the 1974. And it didn't prevent the impeachment remedy from essentially driving Nixon from office. There's obviously something's been amped up to, again, make the removal possibility, not simply that it's going to fail, but but as I think the word you use, I think, Bob, preordained. I mean, it's, you know, w- there's just no way it's going to happen. Are these, is the imperial presidency, you know, en- enough to sort of explain this? And especially, I'll, I'll just double up one other thing, when, you know, Roosevelt, et cetera, Clinton, they enjoy moments of the, their use of the communicative powers of the presidency made them like really popular. We've got a guy who, you know, has never been at 50 percent. And nevertheless, he is, you know, completely secure from removal. Well, I think there are two factors. I'll at least talk about the first one because it kind of ties into my main interest, which is you have to understand in the time of Nixon, the political party system in the United States for much of the 20th century had been not nearly as polarized as the party system started becoming in the late 70s and early 80s. And so for a long period of time, you were able to form coalitions in Congress on all sorts of issues between Republicans and Democrats, sometimes conservatives from both sides, sometimes moderates or liberals from both sides. The party system has been transformed, not you know just in the last few years, but really this began, as I said, in the late 70s, early 80s, and the polarization is just getting more and more and more intense virtually every election cycle. And so once the parties become what I call hyper-polarized, the structures are just not going to operate the way they do in a time when the parties are not as polarized. And with our separated power system and with the you know requirements of things like two-thirds of a vote for things like conviction, it's going to make it much harder for that system to function. And that's part of also why presidential power has been increasing, 
Because when Congress is so polarized and we have our separated power system and Congress becomes unable to address the main issues of the day, whether it's immigration, environmental policy, labor policy, it's inevitable, partly because people demand action, as Bob was saying, that the president is going to start issuing executive orders on these issues. Um, And Congress won't be able to stop him precisely because Congress is separated powers and so hyperpolarized. So the Nixon political environment was just a dramatically different environment. And I don't think it's that, you know, people were more noble or more willing to compromise, except that they were part of a system in which all of that was the way the system was operating. All right. So, yeah, boy, another huge point. So let me just elaborate on this. Let's let's take, you know, the the Clinton impeachment and Trent Lott and the Trump impeachment and Mitch. Let's take Mitch McConnell. Take Mitch McConnell, please. What is this complete dereliction or indifference to any kind of higher minded, uh, non-party driven function a fluke of McConnell and Trump, or is it also sort of all a explained by, you know, political developments of the last generation and B therefore likely to continue? Is this what we now have in our Congress? I would distinguish between Trump and McConnell. I think McConnell is the leader of the Republican Party in the Senate. The party is overwhelmingly opposed to the conviction of Donald Trump. They were overwhelmingly opposed, straight party line vote against impeachment in the House. And he's the leader of the party. He's also, by the way, running for reelection. And as we all know, uh, in this highly polarized environment, there are real costs exacted of politicians who stray from the fold, right? They face primary opposition. They say, you know, brutalizing social media attacks and the like. McConnell has made a decision, apparently. I mean, he's not somebody, by the way, who, you know, divulges his plans in any great and personal detail in his public presentations. But as best as one can tell, he's concluded that it is best to have this over with quickly, without witnesses, uh, that uh, conviction is out of the question. It's not going to happen. He doesn't support it. His caucus doesn't support it. And so probably, you know, from his point of view, if you want to look at this as an institutional judgment, and by the way, I'm not in the habit of putting the best possible face on Mr. McConnell's moves, Mm -hmm. but I'm just going to say you could look at it this way, that it is better for the Senate to be done with this quickly than to have a grinding, divisive impeachment process that just surfaces this sort of violent partisan conflict when the outcome is assured. Right. No, I see that kind of judgment. Yes. But are are we suggesting that, you know, like presidential power— that things have changed in the context of the Senate. You know, famously, yes. some would dispute this. You know, Barry Goldwater or others had certain moments of more high-mindedness. McConnell, not a, not a wit. Is that where we now stand politically going forward? Well, I agree with Rick that the environment has changed significantly, that the actors were working under different conditions in the 1970s. But I would point out that by the time... Barry Goldwater and company made the famous trip to the White House to tell him that his support in the Senate had collapsed. Nixon's numbers had gone into the 20s, half of what Trump's are today. And he was looking at political ruin and everybody knew it. And there's nothing that restores Congress to a more high-minded focus on (laughs) congressional uh, prerogatives and their own political fortunes. So I think that's part of it. I'll make two other points about Nixon that I think are important. Number one, Nixon clearly committed crimes. 
And the Republicans are making an enormous issue here that the House did not allege a crime. The House Judiciary Committee report That's makes it very. Totally I'm not. I'm not pardon me. Pardon me. Pardon me. Hold on a second. I'm not arguing that it's not bogus. Okay. I'm simply saying because the House Judiciary Committee report does indicate the, the belief of the House that what it alleges in Article One includes criminal offenses. And Alan Dershowitz, among others, is going to argue it doesn't matter if it's not in the context of the articles themselves, which I think has to be plainly incorrect. But I'm just simply saying the articles don't allege a crime. Okay. In addition to that. And this is also remarkable. One of the articles against Nixon alleged that he lied to the American public by claiming that the White House had conducted an internal investigation in his direction of who was responsible for the Watergate break-in, and no such serious investigation had ever been directed. Our view of what it means for presidents to lie has changed. Yeah. Well, can I can I even say, actually, even in the Clinton articles, there was a mention of his lies to the public, including his public denials yes, of his relationship. Correct. And that language was stripped out of in of that article in committee. So and there's all this debate in, a, in the committee report about how lies to the public, eh, you know, they're bad. We're not condoning them, but they're not actually impeachable. So even in 98, they considered and discussed and rejected, cons- uh, including public lies in an article. Uh, yes. you know, lies are not all created I, I would, equal. That's obviously. right. I think the context there was that. He lied about something that anybody would be ashamed to admit of a personal nature, whereas in Nixon, he was telling the American public about an official action that had, in fact, not occurred, that was central to the discharge of his responsibilities. Mainly, there was an allegation of illegal behavior in the White House. He directed an investigation of it, and there was no such investigation. All right. But on the I just sort of want your bottom line views on the question. We have traced certain expansions of presidential power. We've all agreed they're part of the story. We are we've now identified a political state of affairs in 2020 that has to do with a hyper partisanship. Is that now an abiding part of of the story? Is that is, is there is it basically if it ever was the case chimerical to think that the next time around you'll be able to look to the the Senate to have some kind of broader nonpartisan elements into their thinking. Well, I, I think the partis- the polarization is because it is a product of structural things that have happened in American history and politics over a long period of time. I think it's likely to be enduring. I, I wrote an article about this maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. And I was at a conference and someone said, you know, I read that article, but I thought its only problem was it was too pessimistic. And now I think, you know, maybe it wasn't pessimistic right. enough. So there could be big things that happen that that unscramble the system that we were locked into. I, I actually thought it was possible President Trump's election could be a catalyst for that because he was changing. For what? For a, for a massive destabilization of the locked in partisan structure that we have. Because he was changing the political base of the Republican Party by bringing in yeah. many more working class, white working class voters who had, you know, in the past, in the New Deal era, for example, been Democrats. And that kind of change, if he had stayed with that approach, could have really unscrambled the party coalitions and unlocked this frozen structure. Now, he didn't end up doing that. And in fact, the structure has gotten more hardened. And I don't see anything that will unharden it unless there's major external events. You know, war yeah. could certainly do that. I think as the Hispanic population becomes more engaged and votes at higher levels, it's unclear exactly how they're going to fall out politically. And maybe that could unlock the structure. But it is a product of pretty deep historical forces. And so there's no magic 
solution that's going to change that. I see nods. Everyone basically agree. Yeah. Um, all right. One final thing I just want to talk about, just, you know, how it, how it figures in. We've talked about governmental power, and we actually could talk a fair bit about not just Chada, but the court's contribution to an expansion of presidential power. But I'd like to just ask your views about the contribution here of the changes in media and news coverage. You hear the people saying, you know, Nixon wouldn't have been uh, impeached if Rupert Mur- Murdoch were alive, et cetera. You ha- I mean, what else is out there? Russians, Twitter, you know, t- TikTok, anything big that if we if we want to pause it, I think we're all positing that the impeachment power is less vigorous than it was are important parts of the story. I mean, this is, you know, an incredibly hard set of questions. Obviously, we are living in a moment of these information silos that are also kind of epistemological silos. And I wish I had some prescriptions as to how um, to break through that. It does seem like a hugely important um, piece of the story, even 20 years ago, you know, well into Rick's sort of narrative of polarization. We didn't have, you know, sort of these competing narratives that resulted in absolutely um, opposing versions of fact and truth. And I think that's a huge challenge and a, a, a huge part of sort of why it feels like things are quite impacted both in this impeachment process and more broadly. And I do think that Rupert Murdoch and Fox News is a hugely important part of the story, although the story is also one in which social media plays a massive role, right? It's not just that sort of one institutional apparatus, but it's a huge part of the story and I have no prescriptions. Yeah. I mean, I don't claim to have unique expertise on the media, but there's no question. You know, I I watch Fox News and I watch MSNBC. I read Breitbart online and, you know, I read other things. And, and these are just totally different universes. I mean, it's it's deeply depressing. Yeah. But the perceptions of reality, the perceptions of motivations, the sense of the facts, just they're just different universes. And that's, a, I think, a scary thing in a democracy, but I, I, I don't know why that would change. Social media, you know, we started off this romantic kind of enthusiasm. This was going to be a way democratic citizens could be much more directly participating and engaged. And about five, six years after that, saw it as this dystopian factor in our politics that fuels culture of outrage and extremism, plays into polarization. And there's no question that that's true. And it's, of course, we have no prescriptions for that. And it's it's deeply depressing. I mean, actually, one prescription I have is podcasts, social media, <laughs> other things that actually try to speak about these issues in a way that is, um, you know, as honest as People can be about the facts, about the law, about the history, but there's much less of an audience for that than there is for extreme advocacy on either side of almost any issue. Right. And we're learning so much more about the ways in which kind of social identification actually drive, you know, decision making. Uh, Bob, any final thoughts on this? I wanted to make two quick thoughts and sort of wrap it up into a general theory. I have another background factor in the you know, apparent you know, desultory character and foreordained outcome of the current impeachment. One is, yes, social media provides and the sort of 24-hour news cycle provides an opportunity for 
partisans to target messages very effectively with, to use Kate's term, sort of extreme epistemological variations in what's presented. And no question about that. It also has a numbing factor that is our numbing effect, which is the discourse is so rhetorically high pitched. A crisis is proclaimed. I see material coming over my emails, uh, you know, just coming across emails. Robert, things have never been worse. Robert, the time has come to immediately stand up for our democracy. And this ties into my view of one background factor. I thought the impeachment drive against Donald Trump died the day that Mueller completed his testimony before the Congress. There was such a buildup to the Mueller report, so many projections that it would be the doom of Donald Trump. The report itself, in so many respects, was very damning and yet widely characterized in some quarters as a disappointment, considerably less than what people expected. Then came the view, well, if we could just get Mueller to testify, Mueller stuck to the report. The testimony was viewed as sort of, whether you mean in sort of entertainment terms, flat or substantively flat, at which point it just became very difficult, it seems to me, to grab the public's attention. I speak about the public in the broadest term and say, okay, now we're talking about a call in July with the president of Ukraine. We're just changing the narrative. But the demand impeachment is the same. I think it's very hard to hold people's attention that long. Yeah. Man, I would love to continue this conversation all day. It is, however, time to wrap it up. We're going to we do our final segment on Talking Feds, five words or fewer, where we take a question from a listener and each of the feds has to answer in five words or fewer. Question today comes from Joyce S., who asks, is there any way to change or remove the OLC opinion that you cannot indict a president? Feds, give it some thought because the five words are strictly enforced. Anyone ready? Sure. Yes, new OLC opinion. Yes, in principle, unlikely in practice. Is that five or six? Six. 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 Uh, judges, in. We'll give it. Okay. <laughs> sure. Yes. In brackets, I've given you the fewest words. You just blew it. <laughs> no, I said it and put it in brackets. That's cheating. Of course. <laughs> Agree. (laughs) OLC opinion, then courts. That's a little elliptical. Thank you very much to Bob, Kate, and Rick. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts, and as well at Patreon.com slash TalkingFeds, where we have exclusive material for supporters. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Jenny Josephson, Anthony Lemos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sam Trachtenberg and Sarah Philippou. Thanks to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. 
Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.